Many thanks, Marigold. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it's still uncertain whether the Tokyo Olympics will go ahead this summer. I hope it does because I love the Olympics. Um, I found that the London 2012 Games was one of the most spectacular events I've um, ever had the privilege of experiencing. Um, walking through the Olympic Park was a huge buzz and a feast for the eyes. The shirts on the crowds of people representing an assortment of nations provided an array of color. As they poured in and out of the London Stadium, the Aquatic Center, or the Copper Box Arena, music and chants filled the air. It was a joyful and wonderful time, one I'll never forget. As we venture into chapter seven of John's Gospel, that's the sort of scene uh, we ought to have in mind. John mentions that the Feast of the Tabernacles, the Jewish festival of the Tabernacles, was near. That's not just background information. The festival of the Tabernacles was a momentous time in the life of Israel, commemorating one of the most significant and important aspects of their faith. You see, the theme of the tabernacle played a vital role in the history of Israel and the Old Testament scriptures. When the Israelites wandered through the wilderness, they lived in temporary shelters like tents, sometimes called booze. And the tabernacle was a big sacred tent of meeting which housed the Ark of the Covenant. And it went before them, wherever they went, wherever they traveled, represented, uh, representing God's presence with his people. And if you're in Sparklight, uh, you will know, uh, having read through the book of Numbers, um, how important the tabernacle is or was. It was about God's living, dwelling with his people. And the festival of the tabernacles was a regular commemoration of that. The ancient historian Josephus describes it as one of the most sacred of Jewish festivals associated with joyous celebrations. Another ancient text, the Talmud says, he who has not beheld this celebration has never seen joy in his life. That's a claim. In fact, even today, Jewish, uh, in Jewish communities, the festival commonly goes by the name the season of our joy. So back then, the festival would have been spectacular. It was a high point in the religious calendars, and entire towns would go up, and communities would go up to Jerusalem for eight whole days to join in with the celebrations. But there were three big features to those celebrations. First, there was the water-drawing festival, or the water-drawing ceremony, where water was drawn up from the spring in Jerusalem and brought to the temple. And there, it would be poured out together with wine as an offering to God. Second, the whole temple was illumined with lights of blazing candles, shining on the city surrounding it. And it reminded the people of the pillar of fire that went before them as they traveled through the wilderness. 
And third, loads of tents or booths were built up and set up in the city itself, like, um, like the ones they used in the wilderness. And they served to remind the people of that journey through the wilderness in which God went with them, but also that they're still journeying. The here and now is temporary, and, the, and there's a final deliverance to come on a cosmic scale in which um, the Messiah would usher in. So we've got water, light, dwelling places. It's worth trying to hold on to those themes as we continue through John's gospel. It's no coincidence that Jesus will say later in this chapter, let anyone who is thirsty come to me to drink. Or in the next chapter, I am the light of the world. Likewise, at our prayer meeting in the week, Steve took us to John chapter 14, where Jesus speaks about going ahead of his disciples to prepare a place of permanent dwelling. The festival of the tabernacles provides that wider Old Testament tapestry to see the full picture of what's going on here, of all that Jesus has come to bring. Anyway, it's no surprise that Jesus' brothers want to go up to the festival. It's where everyone was and where everything was happening. Verses 3 and 4. Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Now, I don't know how Jesus' brothers said that to Jesus. It's quite possible that they were sort of playfully mocking him at that point, or even ridiculing him. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world, lol. Alternatively, perhaps they just wanted the worldly honor that would come to them because of their brother's great show of miracles. Come on, let's go to the festival and show them something really spectacular. That'll blow them away. Either way, it constitutes unbelief. They're right to suggest that Jesus has come to make himself known to the world, but not in the manner that they imagined. Jesus will reveal himself, but not for show. Rather, he would be revealed through God's purposeful, world-subverting design. Verse 7, Therefore Jesus told them, my time is not yet here for you any time will do jesus is selective about his movements he's purposeful so his timing is not the same as his brothers and his plan is unique driven by different values to his brothers they see things through the eyes of the world hence verse 7 the world cannot hate you but it hates me because i testify that its works are evils uh, that, are, that its works are evil they may have shared the same biological mother, but spiritually speaking, Jesus seems to be suggesting that they're in a completely different family. The question is, what does any of that have to do with the Festival of Tabernacles? Why didn't Jesus just go up to the festival with his brothers? He was a Jew like them. Why wouldn't he want to take part in it? And even more of a puzzle, why did he then go up to the festival when he suggested to them that he wouldn't? 
Well, one obvious reason Jesus didn't go with his brothers is because of the hostile opposition Jesus was already facing by this stage in his ministry. In verse 1, we read that the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. And in verse 11, they're watching out for him, scanning for him among the crowd. Arriving as part of a delegation would probably draw more attention to him than he planned at this stage. The more public Jesus became, the more attention and opposition he received. And it would bring on more conflict, which would hasten his plans and his approaching death. My time is not yet here. However, there's an even more significant reason Jesus didn't go up to the festival immediately, which is cryptically suggested in verse 8. Jesus says to his brothers, you go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. This festival? Is there another festival? Jesus distinguishes himself from his brothers and from participation in the festival. Why? Well, up till now, the reasons aren't entirely clear. That's kind of the point. The plot is slowly unfolding and being unveiled. Like the crowds in verse 12, who are quietly debating whether Jesus is good or bad, we, the readers and the hearers, are being invited to consider Jesus' person, his words, his actions, as more and more of the picture, the tapestry, is revealed. But the second half of the passage verses 14 to 24, helps us to see it more clearly. Like looking at a piece of art in a gallery, as your eyes scan across it, as you scan across the picture, you see more detail and it becomes, uh, it makes more sense. If I were to put a caption next to this piece, I'd summarize it like this. Jesus is the tabernacle the location of God's dwelling, the fullness of the festival being celebrated. I should say that again. Jesus is the tabernacle, the location of God's dwelling, the fullness of the festival being celebrated. In other words, the reason that Jesus couldn't participate in the festival, in the festival of the tabernacles, is because he is the tabernacle of God. He himself is the thing to be celebrated. A bride doesn't turn up to her wedding and then sit in the back pew of the church. A lead actor in a play doesn't sit in the audience waiting for the show to start. They're the ones we're meant to watch and celebrate and enjoy. The engagement party, the dress rehearsal, all the things uh, that go before those occasions are simply preparations. They're significant, they're real, and they really matter, but they're meant to draw us to the main event. Likewise, God truly dwelt with his people in the wilderness. Just as he promised, he guided and protected them. But the fullness of that reality comes with Jesus Christ. 
As we've seen, Jesus is the eternal word who became flesh and made his dwelling, literally tabernacled among us. I know it's half term, but um, children and, and young people among us are at home. Imagine for a moment that you're back in the classroom after the break, and it's your first lesson of the day, um, and your teacher is standing at the front of the class teaching you on a new topic. Anyway, halfway through the lesson, imagine that I walk in and I stand in front of them and start lecturing to you about something. How would you react? Would you be shocked? Would you be embarrassed? I know my children would be. <laughs> How would your teacher react? Wouldn't they be outraged? Well, of course they would. Because I don't have the authority to barge in like that, like I own the place. But notice how Jesus' first involvement in the festival is to go to the temple courts and to teach. If he was anyone else, that would be considered at the very least presumptuous and um, if not completely outrageous. But for Jesus, it's entirely appropriate. Because as Jesus told the Jewish leaders previously, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. That was John chapter 5. Of course, the people are amazed in verse 15 because Jesus has no official training or, or office. And so Jesus explains, verse 16, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. As we've heard already, today is Trinity Sunday in the church's calendar. And we've mentioned um, the Nicene Creed previously, and we're going to recite it together in a short while. But in many places on Trinity Sunday, it's customary to recite the Athanasian Creed. Um, it's a longer and wordier creed, which is why churches don't often use it, and um, which is why we're, we're saying the Nicene Creed together today. But the, the Athanasian Creed is a good place to turn to absorb what Jesus is saying in this verse, verse 16. Jesus says, my teaching is not my own. It's an amazing statement because in one moment, Jesus both claims this as his teaching, my teaching, and says that it belongs to another, is not my own. Well, how can that be? Well, the Athanasian Creed says, we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons, that is, confusing the Father with the Son, or the Son with the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit with the Father, nor dividing the substance, that is, making three different gods, for there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. In the words Jeanette used uh, to remind us of this last week, there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And that's really important because it will save us from all sorts of confusion in our love and our worship of God. Jesus Christ is not just a a prophet or a good man. He is God the Son, who together with the Father and the Spirit is worthy of our devotion and praise. So it's right and good that we put our faith in him. But there's even more to what Jesus says here. My teaching is not my own. Then Jesus says, it comes from the one who sent me. Jesus Christ is the divine son who has been sent into created space, time, and history. In other words, the uncreated, the invisible, the incomprehensible son who is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit is somehow standing before them in the flesh, in the middle of this festival, celebrating God's dwelling with his people. And that, friends, is the wonder of the incarnation. This is what the Athanasian Creed says uh, again. For the right faith uh, is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of the substance of his mother, born in the world. Perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting. That means he's human in every respect, not just uh, having a shell of a body. Equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood, who although he be God and man, he is not two, but one Christ, one not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, so he doesn't stop being God, but by taking of the manhood into God. He adds to himself a human nature. One altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. We've remembered that there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what this part of the creed teaches us is that Jesus Christ is one person who possesses two natures. He is God and man. Unfortunately, the Jewish leaders themselves failed to recognize the significance of Jesus' presence. And their lack of faith prevents them from seeing the truth about Jesus. They don't recognize how Jesus is speaking as God from God because their hearts are, from, um, are far from God. And so they call Jesus demon-possessed in verse 20. And they don't recognize how Jesus is doing the work of God, um, the work of God from God, like healing the man on the Sabbath in chapter 5, because according to Jesus, they're judging by mere appearances, i.e. their perception, their way of seeing Jesus is skewed by their own self-glory and human-centered way of seeing the world. But what about us? If you're honest with yourself, who do you most identify with in the passage this morning? Perhaps Jesus' brothers, 
who's shaped by the world, are frustrated that Jesus doesn't comply with their preferences and timings. Since you're doing these things, since you're the miracle maker, since you're the son of God, why don't you just prove it by making things better and easier for us? They want glory and fulfillment without waiting or suffering. Is that your view of Jesus? He's someone who ought to make my life easier, not harder. The reality is that Jesus hasn't come to alleviate our suffering in the here and now. His way is one of suffering to glory, of grace in and through suffering. If we really believe that, how would that shape our view of this pandemic experience? How would it shape our view of our trials? How would it shape our view of what Jesus is doing in us through whatever we're going through at the moment? The world wants us to believe that the way of Jesus is harmful because it involves suffering. But the world has got it backwards because it is through suffering that Jesus brings healing and restoration to our sin-filled world. Consider how Jesus separates himself from his brothers, not because he doesn't love them. He does so in order to walk that lonely road to the cross that only he could walk so that they might truly be brought into his family, the family of God. Perhaps you identify more with the people in the crowd. You're quietly wondering and whispering and weighing up whether Jesus is good Uh, someone to put your hope and your faith in, or someone to dismiss as another self-appointed guru figure who wants a following. Perhaps you've even drifted to that place during the pandemic, and you're wondering whether Jesus is worth following any longer. Maybe at the moment you identify most with the Jewish leaders, and you're angry with God, angry at Christ for the things... He's, he's done and not done through this time. Well, if you feel anything of that, may I urge you to consider verse 17 this morning. Jesus says, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. What does it mean to do the will of God? Well, Jesus has already taught the crowd what it means. After he fed them those loaves of bread and the fish, he said in John chapter 6, verse 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And so Jesus says, the more that you draw near to Jesus by faith, the more you will see who he is and how good he is. If you want to judge correctly, if you want to see things properly, to see true reality, then move towards, not away from Jesus. Wonderfully, we don't have to be in the temple court listening to Jesus to do that. You know, even right now as a church, we are a sort of recapitulation, a a, 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 recapitulation. I don't know what the other word for that is, but a recapitulation of of the reality of that moment. The Lord's presence is available and conveyed to us by the Spirit as we meet with Christ. 
especially as we gather uh, to worship and receive his word. He has come in history, and he is here, tabernacling with his people, the church. People of God rejoice in that. Each time we gather on the Lord's day, it is a festival and a celebration of God's dwelling among us and a sign of what's to come. Jesus is the tabernacle, the location of God's dwelling, the fullness of the festival being celebrated. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you that you are here with us as we gather, as we receive your word, and we ask that by the Spirit you would help us to draw near to you. Thank you, Lord God, that you promised to draw near to us as we draw near to you. And we pray especially for those who are um, apart from us um, in these pandemic conditions. We, we pray, um, Lord, that they might also know your presence with them. And our Father, we pray that in your mercy and your goodness and grace, we might be able to experience the full reality of that as we um, gather together as one church again soon. Um, please, Lord, um, draw us close to you during these times as we wait for that prospect. And we give you thanks as well for the fullness that we can anticipate of that reality in the resurrection when Christ shall come and bring his people uh, to gather in his house uh, uh, forever. In his name we pray. Amen.